You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? Welcome to another episode of The Roulette Tapes. I'm Susan James. Alto saxophonist and composer Emmanuel Wilkins is a current resident artist at Roulette, and today we'll look at his work in three settings. His evening-length composition, Blues Blood Black Future, featuring his quartet augmented with three vocalists, his ongoing collaboration with vibraphonist Joel Ross, and excerpts of his compositions in a recent trio concert recorded at Roulette. Here's Emmanuel Wilkins. I'm Emmanuel Wilkins, and I'm a saxophonist and composer. So I started out playing at, at the age of three. My parents pretty much just kind of enrolled me in whatever whatever I had mentioned in passing. So if it was like I wanted to be a firefighter, you know, I had a birthday at a, at a fire station, or if I wanted to be a scientist, they had, they enrolled me in science classes. And so a, a lot of my, my, I guess, my formative years or, or younger years was just me kind of trying out a bunch of stuff. And so... When I was three, they, they signed me up for violin lessons. And one of my earliest experiences with the music was, um, I remember my parents were coming to pick me up from a lesson. And my teacher had kind of said to my parents, like, hey, you know, uh, Emmanuel, would you mind playing something for your parents? You want to play something? And I remember looking at the page. I, I, I guess we were, you know, maybe playing like, you know, Mary Had a Little Lamb or, or, or Hot Cross Buns or something. And I remember looking at the page and realizing it would be marginally better if I tried to make up something than if I tried to play what was on that page. And so that was kind of one of my first like experiences with improvising and kind of that just, you know, the freeness of, of music and, and how it made me feel just on, on kind of a really just human level, really human level. You know, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to play anything. I knew it would be much better if I just, you know, played what was, what was, uh, what I felt like playing. I guess when I was in the third grade, my parents got me a saxophone because violin didn't work out, piano didn't work out. I tried a couple other things. I tried singing, that didn't work out. 
And so my parents got me a saxophone in the third grade and I enrolled in the band and I also enrolled in a pretty important music program in Philadelphia called the Clef Club, which Lovett Hines is the director. And he kind of mentored a, a lot of great jazz musicians who came out of Philadelphia. So for me, it was, a, it was really an interesting experience to be a part of that and to grow up around you know, kind of masters of the music. That that was kind of an old school experience because you had kind of older musicians who were still m mentoring younger folks. Like I, I I would assume the old days were like in the in the fifties and sixties where you had you know kind of mentorship on the scene. It wasn't it, it wasn't really in the schools. Yeah, the Clef Club had, had been really in, uh, instrumental for me. I did the Clef Club until uh, my senior year of high school, and then I graduated high school and I went to Juilliard for four years uh, and I graduated in 2015.
I mean, being in New York is 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 it's crazy. I mean, it really is a melting pot, but it's also an overwhelming experience because there's just so much great music around. There's so many great musicians, and especially you know for jazz music, it's, it's this is this is kind of central hub for the music and and from all of my heroes that I've grown up listening to, and everyone kind of lives here. And so it was. I guess the the first shock for me was going to jazz clubs and going on the scene and seeing you know my heroes there just hanging out you know i guess that was also just a interesting experience because that wall was broken where they suddenly became human they weren't like these superhero people that i had idolized like that anymore it was, it was kind of like yeah like you know we're in the same space now and, and he's hanging out just like i'm trying to hang out you know it, it, was, it was just a, it was super exciting to be around you know people who you know i felt that reverence towards yeah i guess uh one of those people was Jason Moran. Jason Moran kind of took me under his wing when I moved to New York. While I was living in Philadelphia, I had been kind of going to all of his shows whenever he would come in town. And then once I moved to New York, he took me on the road with him uh, my sophomore year of college. I remember it was, a, it was a month long tour and I had to miss like a month of, of Juilliard. And so I had to like be super proactive with, with the school about getting everything together and they almost didn't let me go. But you know, Jason was gracious enough to, to take me on the road early on. On one of those tours, I ended up asking him to produce my record, which he said yes to. And uh, he's, yeah, he's been a really inspirational person to me ever since then. His debut recording for Blue Note was named the number one jazz album of 2020 by the New York Times. And a new recording is due out this year. So I ended up forming that band in, in my sophomore year of, of college. And it, it really, it took a second. I was, I was kind of searching around the New York scene for people and I ended up falling back on, you know, people I kind of either grew up with or were really in my immediate vicinity upon moving to New York. I met Micah Thomas, the piano player at Juilliard. He was, he was in my class. And uh, Daryl Johns, I, I pretty much grew up with. He lives in Jersey, I was from Philly. so. We were kind of right across the bridge from each other. And then Kweku Sumbri played on the first kind of jam session I had in New York City with another fellow young jazz musician named Joel Ross, who we have kind of a long-standing collaboration going on. So yeah, I mean, those those people have been, you know, some of my closest friends, some of my closest collaborators, and they've, they've brought so much to, to my music. When we started playing, it was kind of generally understood amongst the four of us that uh, it was something special that, that needed to be developed. We've kind of prided ourselves on developing that core sound and continuously kind of trying to build that thing. And we've been open to collaborating with other people and, and kind of um, yeah, expanding that sound, I guess. So me, me and Joel actually met 
at a jam session at Dizzy's, a late night jam session, like maybe the first couple weeks of us both moving to New York. So he, he moved from, he was he was in California at the time at the Brubeck Institute and I had moved to go to Juilliard. And so we kind of moved in that August, September range of 2015. I remember we, we had kind of known each other through the interwebs, but uh, we hadn't met in person. And uh, I remember we met and then we, he called me to play a session with, with Kwaku and that, that was kind of it. We, we started to hang out, we started to play, and uh, we developed a, a language that is very much based out of his, also his relationship to minimalist comping. You know, him being a lead instrument and a comping instrument is uh, super cool because it allows him, in a, in a very non-committal way, to be able to get in where he fits in when he wants to. And so that actually became something that I kind of adapted as a predominantly frontline person that doesn't get to comp. I recently moved to Brooklyn and I moved to Clinton Hill, which is, uh, you know, pretty close, pretty close to roulette. And I was talking to somebody about just my favorite venues in, in New York, period. And roulette was at the top of the list for me. And I think it's not only that the venue itself is such a, you know, a beautiful space and a pure space to, to create in, but it's also it's a sense of family. And uh, I think roulette really uh, gave me a chance and, and gave me space to, to create what I wanted to. And I, it's few and far between period for artists we need time we need space to to make and and it, that's hard to do and and i think roulette really really you know gave that gave that to me and, and allowed me to dream bigger you know uh because a lot of times it's like your dreams only go as far as the 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 parameters are kind of around them so whether that's financially or you know time-wise or space-wise you know any of those things it's it's great when we have the 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 room to, to dream bigger. This piece 
uh, for the Roulette Commission was called Blues Blood, Black Future. And it basically draws from the story of Daniel Ham, who was a young man who got uh, wrongfully incarcerated back in the 60s during the Fruit Stand Riots with a group of six kids called the Harlem Six. And they uh, got arrested for uh, wrongly accused of murder. And they were really uh, beaten up in, in jail, suffered a lot of brutality. And there's this recording that Steve Reich had kind of fielded of Daniel Ham recounting him trying to get medical attention. And he, he basically was talking about how, like, he had a bruise, but they wouldn't really allow him medical attention unless he was bleeding. And so the recording says, I had to, like, open the bruise up and let some of the bruised blood come out to show them. But instead of bruise, he slips up and says blues. And so I was fascinated with that kind of blues blood, you know, the notion of blues blood. And I just thought about blues as being kind of optimism in the face of adversity. It's like, you know, black folk was out on the plantation and singing these songs that was, was basically like, things are bad now, yet somehow things will be better eventually. And so kind of fascinated with that, like kind of radical optimism. And also blood just being a symbol of things, all things generational. And so it was kind of a, a piece basically about ancestral memory and, you know, what it means for, for us in, in 2021 and going forward and, you know, for the people in 2040, you know what I mean? It's like, that's kind of what I was thinking about with, with the piece. That piece was a collaboration with my quartet plus three singers, Ganavia Dorsami, Yao Ajiman, and Alyssa McDoom, plus Sekai Ebony, who was cooking on stage. And basically, I, I had shared the uh, work with Sekai originally to just get some lyrics from her. I, I sourced lyrics from Diaster Gates, from uh, Alyssa McDoom, and uh, from Sekai. And Sekai had this interesting idea of tying in cooking in, into the piece, thinking about how uh, one of the things that kind of activates that idea of memory was food, was, was smell, you know, what, what it means to kind of come home and to, you know, food cooking on the stove or, or, or something. And so that became a, another facet of the, of the piece that we were doing was this live cooking on stage. And I remember we were in rehearsal and we were running through the music and there was a moment in the rehearsal where we kind of paused and, and everyone kind of looked around and was like, man, you guys smell that. Like it, it smelled, uh, it smelled really amazing. And so the, the piece kind of has this kind of 3D effect, you know, or 4D effect to it where uh, you get to experience the smells and, and, and someone actually cooking on stage while, while we play. And this is, this is the first time I've written for singers, especially three singers, and they kind of improvise together and also solo on their own and, and have their own space. So. Ch 
to On drums, we have Mike Mitchell, and on piano, it's David Varelis. So we're listening to a collection of music that I came up with, I guess, throughout my uh, like early years in, in college, or maybe, uh, I guess, 2015, 2016, 2017. And they, they were basically songs that didn't make my records, and so... Um, I'm trying to find a, a, a unique house for them. This is a group that I've been kind of thinking about for a while with David Varelis and Mike Mitchell and featuring kind of David playing uh, some, some synthesizers and me as well playing some synthesizers and just trying to find a, a, a unique situation to bring this music in and make it shine as bright as possible. <laughs>
alto saxophonist Emmanuel Wilkins. The Roulette Tapes is a production of Roulette Intermedium. This project is made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our executive producer is David Weinstein. I'm Susan James. Thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.